This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The Rounds Table. I'm Emily Hughes, and I'm one of your co-hosts for today. I'm so excited to be back on air with The Rounds Table, and we have two very exciting episodes for you today. But before we get into those articles, I want to introduce my co-host, Justin Boyle. Justin is a PGY2 in internal medicine at Queen's University, who you've heard on the air before, and he's also the chief of internal medicine at Queen's. Justin, we're so excited to have you today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to, you know, record this episode with you and talk about these exciting papers. And I guess I should also introduce you as well. So uh, this is Dr. Emily Hughes. Um, uh, FRCPC PGY3 internal medicine resident at the University of Toronto. I also went to medical school with her and she is the incoming chief medical resident at Women's College Hospital in downtown Toronto. Awesome. Thanks for the introduction, Justin. Thanks for the co-introductions, I should say. Awesome. So let's dive into our papers. Justin, what paper are you going to be covering today? Today, I'll be covering an interesting article that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in March 2022. And this paper isn't really a traditional rapid-fire paper, but the paper is entitled The Association Between Socioeconomic Disadvantage and Decline in Function, Cognition, and Mental Health After Critical Illness Among Older Adults. As someone who does tons of inpatient medicine in my internal medicine residency, I do often wonder what happens after a patient's acute care stay. So I'm interested in this article. Tell me, what was the research question? Their research question was to evaluate the association between socioeconomic disadvantage and decline in function, cognition, and mental health among older survivors of an ICU hospitalization. And why is this important? I think that this is important in many different ways. First and foremost, new or worsening impairments in function, cognition, and mental health after a critical illness, more generally described as post-ICU syndrome, present a mounting concern to patients, clinicians, and society more generally, especially after the COVID-19 pandemic when such a large proportion of individuals were hospitalized in acute care and ICU context. But in particular, older adults are especially susceptible to these impairments because of pre-existing factors such as frailty, cognitive impairment, and sensory deficits. And in particular, disparities by race, insurance, and SES that widely plague our healthcare system more generally have been described in many studies of short-term mortality and hospital readmissions from conditions such as pneumonia, sepsis, and acute respiratory failure. And so I think that there's an impetus for us to study whether or not having socioeconomic disadvantage as an elderly person would predispose you to worse outcomes compared to other individuals of your same age group. Interesting. I totally agree. And I'm really curious to know in which healthcare system this study took place, because I could imagine that healthcare systems that are publicly funded versus privately funded might have different impacts. So I hope we get into that. We definitely will. And that's actually one of my limitations upcoming. Okay, great. Uh, So before we get into that, tell me a bit about the study design. So this study was conducted across uh, the United States. And the data was drawn from something called the National Health and Aging Trend Study, which is a longitudinal nationally representative survey of community-dwelling Medicare beneficiaries that are aged 65 years or older that are living in the contiguous United States. Ah, so this is an American study, will be important when we think about its conclusions. 100%. Perfect. And tell me a little bit more about the study design. This study was designed as a retrospective cohort study where data was taken from this National Health and Aging Trends Study database and was analyzed through the lens of their research question. And in particular, they applied various exclusion criteria to this pool of patient information uh, that was collected through this survey-based approach. And in particular, they looked at individuals that were over the age of 65, and 
they really wanted to focus on those who only had one hospital admission, those who were community dwellings. So any individual who was within a nursing home or spent more than 100 days in a nursing home was not included in this pool of individuals. More than that, any individuals that had any missing data on race or other demographics, such as socioeconomic information, was also not included in the study. Okay, and just looking through right now, it looks like the things that they assessed were assessment of function, assessment of cognition, assessment of mental health. That was about it, hey? Yes, and so specifically, they identified what these individuals possessed in terms of baseline function, baseline cognition, and baseline mental health before they were admitted to hospital based on information that was from within this National Health and Aging Trend study. And then they had follow-up with these individuals after they were discharged from hospital by either the patient themselves or a proxy that they assigned to redetermine what their new functional status was, what their new cognitive status was, and how their mental health was. Got it. And what did the patients look like? So in particular, the table one really had a similar mean age across the three different sample pools. And by sample pools, I mean those individuals that were included in the cognition pool, the function pool, and the mental health pool. And their age was approximately 80 years on average. Moreover, there was a larger proportion of individuals included in the study that had a higher level of income and healthcare benefits associated with their access to healthcare. And a larger proportion of women were uh, of lower socioeconomic status as defined by their access to health insurance. Furthermore, there were a larger proportion of white individuals in the higher socioeconomic status groups. And more than that, they had a higher proportion of individuals from ethnic and minority backgrounds that were represented in the low SES groups. Okay, and what were the main results of this study? So the main results spread across the three different aspects that they were looking at or the primary outcomes they were looking at are as follows. With respect to function, they found that the median weighted post-ICU disability count for individuals of a low socioeconomic status was associated with a 28% greater post-ICU count of disability. With respect to cognition, individuals that were from a low socioeconomic status had a 9.8 times greater odds of developing probable dementia relative to individuals that were admitted to the ICU from a higher socioeconomic status. Finally, with respect to mental health, they ultimately found that having a lower socioeconomic status was not associated with any worsening mental health outcomes in comparison to elderly individuals from a higher socioeconomic status. But they did see that your previous mental health before you were admitted to ICU had a greater impact on how your mental health changed after you were admitted to the ICU. Okay. Wow, those are really interesting results. They are. And they also highlighted in this paper that all of the sensitivity analysis that they conducted did not substantially change the magnitude or direction of the associations that they found, which indicates that whatever is happening to drive these associations is likely due or most likely due to the difference in socioeconomic status that underscores the different groups that they created. Okay. This really highlights the social determinants of health and how they're so important. Definitely. Any limitations to the study? So the study, unfortunately, has several limitations. And I think that, Emily, you highlighted the most prominent one to me when I initially read this paper, is that this study was conducted within the United States. And of course, they have a privatized healthcare system. 
And when extrapolating these results to a Canadian healthcare context is challenging due to the fact that it's a publicly funded healthcare system, especially in the context of individuals accessing IC level care or acute hospital care, and that is provincially funded and individuals don't have the same limitations to accessing healthcare in that way in Canada. However, what I would be interested to see, and I guess is beyond the scope of this study, is that if elderly individuals were stratified based on income, and if that played an impact in their outcomes after an acute or critical illness, in particular within the domains of cognition, function, and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested to see a new study in different contexts to see if the same conclusions would apply. But as you so rightly said, we can't really generalize this to to the Canadian context because the system in which we operate is so different, but interesting nonetheless. I agree completely. And I think that there are some other limitations within the study. And in particular, this is a cohort study. And so there are different confounders that may not have been included or incorporated into their multivariable analysis. Furthermore, because race is a social construct and it is tightly linked with socioeconomic disparities, the effects that were observed cannot necessarily be considered independent of structural racism, especially because the individuals, based on their demographics that were represented within these different groups of whether or not they had low SES versus high SES, were really noted to have a higher proportion of individuals that were from minority backgrounds overrepresented in the low SES groups. Okay. Um, What's your take-home point from the study? My take-home point from the study is that there may be an association between socioeconomic status in this paper, as defined by access to Medicare insurance, that poses individuals that are elderly at greater risk for functional and cognitive decline after an ICU hospitalization, and that generally these findings may highlight the need to prioritize low-income seniors in rehabilitation and recovery efforts after a critical illness. Okay. Will this change your practice, or should it change practice in the context to which it's generalizable? So... I don't necessarily think that this is a paper that can inform practice change, especially as this is a podcast that is recorded in a Canadian healthcare context, and that as this paper was sort of based in the U.S. healthcare system and how they defined low socioeconomic status through access to healthcare insurance. But I do think that this is a really good paper as sort of food for thought in allowing us to really recognize that individuals that experience critical illness are especially vulnerable. And that may be even more so in elderly individuals, especially if they do have various limitations in income, for example, or other determinants of health. And beyond that, that as healthcare practitioners, it's incredibly important for us to incorporate social determinants of health into the medicine that we practice, whether or not that's in an inpatient or outpatient setting. Moreover, I also think that this really underscores the importance of connecting individuals that have experienced critical illness to various rehabilitation programs to help minimize the development of things like post-ICU syndrome and to really fund research that can help us investigate whether or not social determinants of health impact patients in an ICU context or which determinants of health in particular predispose patients to having worse outcomes after they have experienced critical illness. Yeah, and I'd really be interested in the same study, but done in the Canadian context to see if some of these findings still hold true. A sobering article that I think raises at least some very good hypothesis generating questions for the Canadian context, if nothing else. 
I agree completely. And thank you so much for your thought-provoking questions as well, Emily. Thanks, Justin. Alrighty, so now on to you. Uh, what paper have you prepared for us today? So to switch gears entirely, I will be covering a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of 2022. And the paper is from a Canadian group out of McMaster titled Tranexamic Acid in Patients Undergoing Non-Cardiac Surgery. This sounds like a paper I very much would want to read. What research question were they looking at? Well, in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery who are at risk of bleeding in cardiovascular events, does tranexamic acid result in a lower incidence of life-threatening bleeding, major bleeding, or bleeding into a critical organ? And is it non-inferior to placebo with respect to the incidence of major cardiovascular complications within 30 days? That's a very robust research question, and I think that we use transexamic acid in so many different medical situations that it's really cool that they're looking at it in this context. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And you know what? There's limited data on the use of tranexamic acid to reduce bleeding in non-cardiac surgery. And as we all know, perioperative bleeding is a common complication of non-cardiac surgery, and it's associated with increased morbidity and mortality. Medical interventions to decrease bleeding in this context are limited, and novel therapeutic options are needed. And personally, I was excited to read this trial because if positive, it would give us as internists another tool to optimize patients in the perioperative period. I agree completely, especially as we do so much perioperative medicine, there aren't many things for us to use within our toolkit to help optimize patients before surgery. And so if this is positive as a trial, then it's something that we could really use to help patients as they experience surgery. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in the perioperative period, we already do things like you know, maybe, well, if the patient is iron deficient, we might give them iron, you know, we might try to optimize anemia in many other ways. But, you know, to actually decrease bleeding in the peri-OR, I think we could always use more options. So I was really excited to see this trial. For sure. And what study design did they use? So this was a prospective randomized controlled trial. Patients were randomly assigned to receive either tranexamic acid, one gram IV bolus, or placebo at the start and end of surgery. And did they exclude any specific types of patients from the study? Patients were excluded if they were undergoing cardiac surgery or intracranial neurosurgery, or if a physician planned to administer systemic tranexamic acid during surgery, or if the patient had a creatinine clearance of less than 30 mils per minute, or if the patient was receiving long-term dialysis. Okay. Thank you for describing their study design for us. And what outcomes were they looking at? Well, the primary outcome was a composite of life-threatening bleeding, major bleeding, or bleeding into a critical organ at 30 days. And the primary safety outcome was a composite of myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, many of you will know this as MINS, non-hemorrhagic stroke, peripheral arterial thrombus, or symptomatic proximal venous thromboembolism at 30 days. And of note, this safety outcome is actually really important. As we all know, tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic drug, so it's important to know if tranexamic acid increases the risk of thrombotic events. Secondary outcomes included the individual components of the above primary outcomes, transfusion of at least one unit of packed red blood cells, or amputation. I agree completely. I think that one of the main challenges as to knowing whether or not to use transexamic acid is whether or not it will increase the risk of thrombotic events. So I'm glad that they really incorporate that into their safety outcome. Yeah, me too. I thought it was great that they had a primary efficacy and safety outcome for this trial. So important given the drug of interest. 100%. And what did the patients look like that were in this trial? So eligible patients were 45 years old or older. They were undergoing inpatient non-cardiac surgery, and they were at risk for bleeding or cardiovascular complications. So, for example, they maybe had known atherosclerotic disease, were undergoing major surgery, were 
greater than the age of 70, or creatinine was greater than 175. And in terms of what the patients actually looked like, they were around 69 years old, and there was a relatively even split between male and female. Approximately 30% of them had coronary artery disease, about 37% had diabetes and were on medication for their diabetes, 90% had hypertension, and about 8% had history of stroke. The most common type of surgery that was undertaken was general surgery, followed by orthopedic surgery, and then others. And only about 1% of patients had taken a DOAC vitamin K antagonist or an IV or subcutaneous antithrombotic agent within 24 hours of surgery. About 14% of patients were on an antiplatelet, either aspirin or Plavix. I'm glad that their patients overall seem to be relatively balanced with respect to sex age as well as various comorbidities. Although I do see that patients that do have significant renal disease weren't included in the study. Yeah, but only if their creatinine clearance was less than 30 or if they were on dialysis. So, you know, we're still capturing a population that does have renal disease, just not the most severe renal disease. Very fair. And what results did they find? So a total of about 10,000 patients underwent randomization. And patients in the TXA group were less likely to have a composite bleeding outcome than patients in the placebo group. So 91% in the TXA group and 11.7 in the placebo group. This corresponded to a hazard ratio of 0.76, which was significant with a p-value less than 0.001 for superiority. Next to our primary safety outcome, a composite cardiovascular outcome event occurred in 14.2% of the TXA group and in 13.9% of the placebo group. And although this between group difference was small, non-inferiority could not actually be established. Was there a reason in particular as to why non-inferiority could not be established? So yes, Justin, to answer your question, there was a slightly higher raw number of patients who had one of those composite cardiovascular outcome events in the TXA group than in the placebo group. So statistically, when we did the test of non-inferiority, we couldn't actually say that TXA was non-inferior to placebo, as there was a slightly higher number of events in the non-placebo group, so in the TXA group. That makes sense. And what were the limitations that you found with this paper? So Justin, overall, I think that this was a very well-conducted study, but something that I'd just like to highlight is that both the primary efficacy outcome and both the primary safety outcome were composite outcomes. So all we can say is that a patient, if they receive TXA, is more likely to experience a composite bleeding outcome event, but not an individual bleeding outcome event. And I think that this is something important to think about when we interpret the results. And what is the take-home point for us today? So what struck me when I first read the results was that bleeding was actually very common. So 9.1% in the tranexamic acid group and 11.7% in the placebo group, and significantly higher in the placebo group. But as I mentioned, non-inferiority could not be established with the primary safety outcome, the composite cardiovascular outcome. I think that's a great point that even in individuals that did receive tranexamic acid, 9.1% of them still experienced some form of major bleeding, which is quite profound. And is this practice changing for you? Well, I think that healthcare providers and patients will have to weigh the clear benefit of incidents of composite bleeding outcome events against the low probability of composite cardiovascular outcome events. I can see this as a very appropriate discussion to have in GIM pre-op clinic to make an individualized decision for each patient. So yes, it will be practice changing for me because I'll add this to my pre-op optimization toolkit for select patients with high bleeding risk and ideally low cardiovascular risk. I think that's an excellent 
point. And in general, when we practice medicine, it's really looking at the patient in front of you and trying to figure out what in your toolkit really can help this individual, especially as they will soon engage with something as significant as surgery. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on whether or not this would be practice changing. Um, and in particular, really the importance of practicing patient-centered and individualized medicine, especially with something as significant as perioperative optimization uh, for individuals that we do encounter in the internal medicine context. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. So I guess this moves us on now to our good stuff segment. It does indeed. Justin, what were you reading about this week? What's the good stuff for you? So today I was looking at uh, CBC and I found a very cute and quirky article on how some scientists discovered that wild baby parrots babble like human babies, which I think is amazing. Wow, how many bees is that? Baby parrots babbling like babies. How many times can we say that fast? <laughs> I don't even want to try. Uh, uh, but they, in this article, they really highlighted that the parrots aren't just saying the bird equivalent of goo goo gaga. Instead, they're repeating back the bird sounds that they've heard before from adults and their fellow babies. <laughs> That's so funny. I love it. Babbling babies parrots babbling like babies. Now I'm confused. Maybe I'm just babbling like the baby parrot. <laughs> um, Justin, I think that's an awesome good stuff. And I think that's a great way to end the episode. Thanks so much for recording this episode together. It was awesome. Anytime. Thank you so much, Emily. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>